0: Slash James, netsuite.com slash James.
1: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show.
0: So Omid, I don't know if you know Cal Fussman. He was an editor-at-large at at Esquire. He he interviewed everybody from Gorbachev to... I always think of Gorbachev, but everybody on down from Gorbachev. (laughs) And Larry King and Cal had breakfast every morning for like 700 years. So he's he's the interviewer's interviewer and super smart guy. And Cal Omid has written books about crypto. He was really responsible for crypto at Citigroup, like was one of the top guys for helping Citigroup figure out the crypto landscape. And Omen and I have worked together since 2002, Omit, or 2003.
2: Yeah, sounds about right. And uh, pleasure to meet you, Cal.
3: And it's great to be here. Thank you. I just thought I was going to be a fly on the wall, but uh, I'm so grateful to be able to participate. But I- I'm going to be listening for a while because I got to get
0: caught up on stuff. Yeah, and Omen. I was thinking I would give like a brief explanation from the banking viewpoint of what has happened recently, just like in layman's basic terms, because I think the media is fanning a lot of different flames and I just want to put it in perspective. And then I, I would love then to hear and maybe even challenge your perspective from a crypto
2: viewpoint. Sounds perfect. Let's do it.
0: And and Cal, when, when I describe the bank stuff, feel free if you have an, any questions. I'm just going to go really ten thousand feet high at first, and then we'll see, uh, you know, where it lands. But we all have been seeing the news. I just saw two headlines back to back this morning: banking system could collapse within the next twenty-four hours, and the other headline was everything's fine, don't worry. <laughs> and so, the truth is, a nobody knows, and b the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. But to understand why it's important to know what the basic, basic business model is of a bank. People give money to a bank. When you put money in a savings account, you get, you know, the bank's obligation is to maybe pay you 1% interest per year. Then the way banks make money is they take all of that money and they lend it out, or they buy treasury bills that give them 3% a year. And they give you your 1%, they make 3%. And they their profit is the 2% in the middle. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but that's it. So they're buying treasury bills all day long, all year long. The problem is the treasury bills they bought last year are crap right now because the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates at the fastest rate in history. So if you are sitting on treasury bills that have a 3% dividend or a 3% yield, why would I buy one of those when I could buy new treasury bills that are yielding five or 6% because of rising interest rates. So in a sense what's happened is when there's a run on the banks, meaning more than 5% of the banks depositors want their money back. The bank has to start selling these treasury bills at a significant loss. Cause again, remember the treasury bills they bought last year are worth a lot less than they were, were a year ago because nobody wants to buy those treasury bills unless you give them a deal. So the banks are losing money on every treasury bill they've bought until the past month or so, because all those treasury bills are losing money. That wouldn't be a problem normally because eventually the treasury bills will pay all of their money over time with interest. Like the U S government is a safe entity to lend to, which is what a treasury bill is, is a loan to the U S government. So in the long run, all these treasury bills are fine. But short-term, they're all losing money. So when there's a run on the bank, again, more than a few percentage of depositors want their money back is equivalent to a run, the banks have to start losing money by selling treasury bills at a loss. And so that's, in a sense, what is happening. There is well, a lot of people, depositors who want money back from, let's say, Signature Bank, which was one of the banks in trouble. Signature Bank doesn't have the cash on hand because they invest all their money in super safe treasury bills. So they have to start selling these treasury bills. They have to admit that they're losing money doing it. And then they actually run out of money and they go under. This is a little different than 2008 because banks then were buying super risky things, not super safe treasury bills. They were buying credit default swaps on mortgage-backed securities and whatever. But that's, in a sense, what's happening. It's all, a lot of it is psychology. If there's no run on the banks, there's no problem. It's the run in the banks combined with the Federal Reserve. They hiked interest rates so fast, you couldn't adjust for the risk. Nobody could anticipate how fast they're going to raise interest rates. And this is what's causing the problems with the banks. And if everybody believes that all the banks are bankrupt, there'll be a huge run, and then the banks will be bankrupt. If everybody believes that it's safe, there won't be a run, and then everything's safe. On paper, all the banks are probably bankrupt right now because of, of the Federal Reserve situation. So that's the short term summary, overly simplified, of what's happening. Like, Omen, would you add anything to that? Like, I've left out the crypto angle because there is an
2: important crypto angle. The only thing I would add is that this particular problem impacts small regional banks a lot more than the big systemic, so called too big to fail banks, because those banks have very large and very diversified balance sheets. Plus, a lot of their depositors tend to be more sticky, in part because you know the second we designate a bank as too big to fail, uh, you don't worry about Iran, because in the case of Iran, everybody expects and has expected for since 2008 that the government would intervene and bail them out. So the problem here in the U.S. has been that small and regional banks, which are perhaps not too big to fail, but still had significant deposits over the FDIC insurance limit are the ones that have experienced runs. But as we've learned before, once a crisis starts, who knows where it will spread. So as of this weekend, what began as a regional banking crisis in the U.S. has now taken out effectively one of the world's biggest banks, which is that as of this weekend, the Swiss government engineered a shotgun wedding where UBS bought Credit Suisse.
0: Yeah, for, for $3 billion, which is similar to when, like in 2007, when J.P. Morgan, or, or early 2008, when J.P. Morgan bought out Bear Stearns for a dollar. And, uh, uh, you know, there was a- arranged weddings back then as well. Uh, and that was considered the canary in the coal mine, which led to later Lehman Brothers. There's some history there, too, though, where, like, when long-term capital was blowing up in the 90s, all the banks got together to bail long-term capital out. Except for Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, the two, only two banks that were not bailed out in 2008. So Wall Street had its revenge. And so the crypto angle here is is Wall Street and the government aiming at crypto-friendly and VC-friendly banks the way they aimed at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers.
2: In a way, yes. And I think this is going to, in time, turn into a scandal, or at least it should, because Well, first, I want to acknowledge all financial crises are always multivariate. There's never one specific cause, right? Like even in 2008, yes, the housing bubble and the banks doing too much risky lending was one factor, but there were multiple factors. And this current bank run that we have, uh, you laid it out well, James. Part of the problem is that banks bought a bunch of treasuries last year that are now trading down, but The multivariate part is also that all of these banks had an explosion in deposits during COVID because the Federal Reserve printed a lot of money uh, while simultaneously trying to suppress interest rates. So all of these small and regional banks saw their deposits swell, and what banks do is they invest deposits in things like treasuries, but then they were forced to buy treasuries Not forced, but they chose to buy, the only treasuries available were the ones that paid extremely low interest rates. And then when the Fed started raising interest rates, then the assets out of their balance sheet fell in value. So now the crypto part.
0: Oh, oh, no! let me me just quickly add to what you said. A, A lot of banks are being accused now of not having appropriate risk management. But it's just, I just don't believe that's true because you couldn't, you know, banks try to hedge their risk a little bit but you couldn't have anticipated the speed with which the Fed would raise interest rates. So if you thought you hedged your T-bills at 2% when interest rates were 3%, well, what happens now when they're 4%? Now your hedges are losing money and your treasury bills are losing money. So the thing about hedging is you're taking on twice the risk for half the money and it really is twice the risk.
2: I think that's fair. Even, I believe people have pointed out how even the Fed's own so-called dot plot where they project their own future actions did not anticipate the extent to which they ended up raising rates in the past 12 months. Although I wouldn't fully let bank risk managers off the hook either. At the end of the day, if you are going to be a private entity that is taking risks with people's deposits, you bear some responsibility for all potential outcomes, however unlikely they might be.
0: But but I would say like with Silicon Valley Bank, and this is a, an interesting point, this is the multivariate part. On the one hand, we could say it was targeted because Wall Street doesn't like venture capital and crypto. But the one place where Silicon Valley Bank didn't take appropriate risk management was they have a very unique set of depositors, like large venture capitalists who themselves, like if a few of them withdraw money at the same time, then Silicon Valley Bank's in trouble. They're not as diversified in their depositor base, like a small regional bank might be, who has mom and pop banks at the small regional bank, and you know, big, big venture capitalists that have been pulling their, slowly pulling their money out of Silicon Valley Bank for the past few months, they knew all along there was problems and there was this sort of risk, and Silicon Valley Bank did
2: not account for that risk as well as they could have. And, and this is one of the important lessons of history about the need to diversify a bank's client base. Um, And it's a particularly American problem, James, because in America, for various reasons, we happen to have thousands of small banks, uh, in contrast to Europe or even Canada, where there tends to be fewer, larger banks, which there are downsides to that. But one of the upsides is that the banks have more diversified deposit bases. So in the case of Silicon Valley Bank for tech in general, but also the crypto-friendly banks, which was this... For a bank like Silvergate, this was even more true. The risk of having a concentration of deposits from one industry is that the health and soundness of your bank is now tied to the health and soundness of a single industry. Yeah.
0: So, and, and one one final question about just on the banking side, the problem with this model, as opposed to two thousand eight, where the 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 securities that the banks owned were actually very risky assets like, you know, triple mortgage-backed securities. But with treasury bills, they're actually really in the long-term is no risk. You're going to get all of your money back, 100% chance you're going to get all of your money back with interest, just not as high interest as the interest rates are. But if people just wait, you're going to get your money back. But the problem with the bank is if a depositor wants their money back, you have to give them their money back that second or day. So here's the question I have. If I were the Federal Reserve, and there was a run in a bank, I would simply loan the bank full value of the Treasury bills they own, and also I would get equity in the bank, just like in two thousand nine, they took they took some equity, you know. And the deal is I'm going to sell off the equity when it's at, at a profit, and you know, so I don't nationalize the banks. But that seems like a good backstop, just against Treasury bills. So this way, banks are encouraged to buy Treasury bills and they know they have a loan for the full... Because the loans are totally 100% safe, they know they have a loan available to them if if there's a run in the banks. But there's a cost, there's a consequence the Federal Reserve gets equity. The U.S. government gets equity in the
2: bank. So the first half of that equation is already true, that last Sunday, the Federal Reserve did announce a new facility that does exactly that. It allows banks to go and borrow against their treasury and potentially agency securities at par, as if they're still trading at 100 cents on the dollar. Uh, Perhaps not surprisingly, though, the Federal Reserve is not taking any equity or warrants to benefit from the upside of this or for taxpayers to benefit on the upside of this. And this leads to this whole other conversation as to what do we achieve when we just go from one bank bailout program to another, however justified they might be?
0: Which is why I think there needs to be consequences and the U.S. government needs to to benefit or else we start to veer into national, nationalizing banks and, and fascism where business and government are combined, which really is the definition of fascism, by the way, as opposed to whatever everybody, everybody thinks about fascism. So I think that part of the equation is important. But you're right, they they are opening up the, the lending window to lending it par which by the way prevents the run on all the banks like everyone is afraid of like they're uh, this is not as bad as 2008 like this situation is already resolving itself although correctly people are nervous
2: that's correct and i never thought it was going to be as bad as 2008 because in some ways we've been on this road for decades where in the united states and frankly most of the developed world we just don't let banks fail anymore And we certainly don't let depositors lose money anymore.
0: And, and, you know, correctly so, because it's the government's fault the banks are so underwater on their treasury bills. Like, why is the Federal Reserve, I mean, basically every bank this second is technically bankrupt on paper if there was a run because of the the Federal Reserve raising rates so fast. So they got what they wanted. We have a systemic, potentially systemic crisis if people's psychology turns that way.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Fed certainly deserves a lot of blame, not just for raising interest rates as rapidly as they did, but for suppressing interest rates for the many years that they did, forcing banks, even the banks that wanted to be conservative a year or two ago, you know, like there are a few things more conservative, as you pointed out earlier, as U.S. Treasuries, but it just so happened that U.S. Treasuries paid almost no interest a few years ago, even if you went out the yield curve to 10- and 30-year bonds. So this blatant suppression of what has been the normal financial situation for, frankly, most of history, which is that there is such a thing as an interest rate, and then short-term interest rates might be 1% and 2%, long-term interest rate might have been 5 and 6%. The Fed and other central banks collapsed that, which put a lot of these banks in a precarious situation, particularly during covid when their deposits swelled and they had no choice but to park that money in low-yielding bonds
0: well you know it's interesting when on the podcast i had a, a deputy fed of the federal reserve on the podcast it's a square co-founder jim McKelvey is the deputy fed president uh fed governor of uh, uh st louis um he said the main thing they were worried about then was deflation everything was deflating and so they were tr- begging
2: to have inflation and now they got their wish, unfortunately. They did. And then when the inflation showed up, they thought they told us it was transitory. So they didn't act as early as they could have. I mean, there was a period not that long ago when we had GDP growing at a record pace because we were rebounding from the collapse of 2020. We had the stock market surging to all time for highs. We had unemployment extremely low. And at that very moment, we also had zero interest rates. Yeah. So maybe if the Fed had not injected as much liquidity as they did in the first place or started pulling it out a lot sooner, this whole process of renormalization of interest rates could have happened more slowly, which would have given these banks more time to adjust.
0: But don't you think the Fed, like the interest rates take about 12 to 18 months to really be felt in the economy. Everything else is anticipation. And we haven't had that We've had, we're have had we 12 months in now, a little bit more than that. But shouldn't they wait a little bit at some point to actually see the real effect as opposed to the psychological effect?
2: I think they should be more humble and stop thinking that they know what they're doing. Because the history of modern central banking and these constant whipsaws just shows that they don't know what they're doing. And, and that's not because of the quality of the people, right? Like the, you could put the smartest people on the planet uh, in the central bank. But ultimately, the economy is extremely complex and the forces that impact growth and employment and inflation are also very complex. And this idea that we have these you know, group of like a dozen or so people that get together and say, well, we're going to do this, right? QE, raise interest rates, cut interest rates, cetera, And because of that, here's our 10-year forecast of what's going to happen with growth and inflation. Oh, which, by the way, we've never been right once on any of this. But we're just going to keep doing it. And with every passing crisis, we're going to do it with more money than we've ever done before.
0: Yeah, which... By the way, uh, uh, over the weekend, I think uh, Balaji Srinivasan, a Silicon Valley guy, made a $2 million bet that within 90 days, the whole system collapses and Bitcoin will be a million dollars.
2: Yeah, I I, no, no, I disagree. <laughs> yeah, I do too.
0: Because I think, and this is a very Silicon Valley perspective, A, crypto is not ready and we could talk about that. But B, uh, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> Because, you know, there's not going to be a massive run on the banks like there potentially was in 2008.
2: No, because what we now know is that there is no level of government intervention that they won't do to preserve the banking system. So the the downside, right. So the downside is not a potential complete collapse of the banking system. Certainly if that didn't happen in 2008, it's not going to happen today when the big banks like the JP Morgans of the world, are actually fine. They're very well capitalized and they have diverse balance sheets and they've been experiencing deposit inflows as people leave these regional banks. So I think the real downside risk here is persistent inflation that the Fed can no longer fight because doing so means breaking the banking system.
0: Let me ask you this. I mean, Milton Friedman's statement, Nobel Prize winning economist, you know, from like 19, from the Reagan era in the 1970s, Milton Friedman stated that inflation is always and only a monetary supply issue. So when the mo- amount of money in the economy goes up, there's inflation. When it goes down, there's deflation. But we have seen because of the economy shutdown that there is such a thing as transitory inflation. Like when you stop. Cutting lumber for two years, the cost of building a house goes up because there's no lumber around. So that's an example of transitory inflation. When no there's no supply chains working from China, because China's shut down, price of pharmaceuticals and other things we get and computers go up because that's what we get from China. So and when there's a war in Ukraine, the price of wheat goes up. So these are all transitory issues.
2: Yeah, sure. But at the same time, during COVID, the Federal Reserve expanded its balance sheet by something like $4 trillion, as did every other central bank in the world. And they started shrinking it in the past year. Uh, But guess what? Just by taking back a fraction of the amount of money that they injected into the system, the banking system started to break. So literally, as of last week, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has started expanding again. Because these new bank facilities, including the one that you outlined about lending against par, um, so far, I think the numbers are something like $200 billion uh, in uh, additional monetary expansion from the Fed. Right. And so this is where it's scary. This is the scary thing that has to be
0: underlined, is that now it's all psychology after that. Because every dollar that's printed, theoretically, changes to the value of the dollar bill crumpled up in your pocket and it's a story then you have to either ask yourself is the u.s economy thriving and innovative enough to grow faster than the devaluation of my dollar or is it weakening in some way and whatever story you tell yourself is and if enough people tell themselves that story that's what's going to decide psychologically the, the will the banks collapse or not
2: Yes, but not, again, Like I don't think that psychologically, it's not that will the banks collapse. I think just psychologically, are we just going to have persistent inflation? Because if this idea starts to set in that, one, the economy cannot function effectively without easy money, which I think is true now, and two, that with every passing crisis, the government will go more and more out of its way to prevent a reset, which even something like saving these regional banks by letting them go and borrow against their underwater securities at par, or what some of the banks are asking for, which is they just want the government to guarantee all deposits for a couple of years. Individually, we can say, well, those are good programs because we don't want a collapse of our banking system today. And that's fair. But if you project forward long term, just like in 2008 or 2001 or 1998, there should have been a natural shrinking of the money supply because people and banks blow up. But the government is preventing it from happening. And I think at a certain point, psychologically, the message that that sends to everybody is like, hey, this Milton Friedman-esque money supply thing, it's only ever gonna go in one direction. Yeah, but
0: again, as you pointed out earlier, it's not the depositors' fault. They don't know how to manage the risk that, oh, signature bank is not as safe as well as Fargo Bank. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And I mean, big banks could blow up as well. It's really the bank's management who's at fault. And they, and they, they do have real consequences like they will get fired if they if there's if they have to go to the fed management is taken out is first thing so so i feel like they do have enough
2: consequences there some of them i mean sure like the the management of the banks that have failed which so far we should remember is really just three it's silvergate bank silicon valley bank and signature bank yes they're that management also i mean they got taken over but they essentially failed uh they're still they're still operating and the government has not uh taken receivership yeah. of them so i don't put them in that category but even them sure their stock has fallen yes their management has paid a price and i say this because other people are out saying look these bailouts are not like the 2008 bailouts because we didn't save the shareholders of these companies which is true all of their equity was wiped out a management is often a major shareholder That's true enough, but when you introduce the programs that have been introduced in the last week, you are indirectly saving the management of every other bank because all of their stocks, if the government did nothing and we did have a systemic run on all the small and regional banks, all of their shareholders would be wiped out. So by introducing these programs, we're sort of saving them and we're sort of saving their management. And again, like I have nothing against these people. you know, I'm not someone who thinks that businesses should fail and we should have banking crisis, but we should zoom out and be mindful of the overall trend, which is that in the developed world, we no longer let banks fail to the extent that their depositors feel the pain. So the question I ask you, James, and I ask everybody else is, if the government is always going to underwrite the downside of banking, Isn't it a little bit of a farce to then say we have a private banking system where shareholders and management could benefit from the upside of banking?
0: The answer is
2: nobody knows,
0: right? It seems scary either way. If you don't do what the Fed's doing, then a lot of poor, innocent people are going to lose their life savings. And that's horrific. And by a lot, I mean tens of millions. And if you do do this, you have the consequences you're saying, which is that at some point the easy money gets a little too easy, and then the story becomes true that the dollar becomes weaker and weaker and weaker and inflation goes turns into hyperinflation. So that that's the bet Balaji Srinivasan made over this weekend is that he thinks that time is now. By the way, on my podcast in 2020, John McAfee said the same thing and committed suicide a month later. So look what happens. <laughs> so so that's you know, I want to get to the crypto part, but I think that Cal, was that an okay summary from the banking side? Like, do you feel like it was, you know, layman enough to understand? Yeah. Can I throw in a few questions just before you get to to the crypto?
3: Uh, And these are like very basic questions. Perfect. Uh, Not even about banking. My first one is just about speed. We're at a place now, it seems to me, where when, we, you, know, when you think of bank r- runs, you think back to It's a Wonderful Life and Jimmy Stewart and all the people lined up outside of his yes. little office. And, and they, he knows we got to get to five o'clock if we can stay in business till five o'clock. So every conversation he has with somebody, every hug he gives somebody, every argument he gets into somebody, the clock is ticking. Now it seems with the speed, you just pick up your phone and and I don't know how it's done, but basically everybody can just try and move their money out of the bank in in an hour. How, How could a bank possibly survive that? And especially if, just say there was nothing wrong, but somebody put out a rumor over the internet, everybody got scared and just went
0: to their phone and took their money out. Great question, which is what the Federal Reserve is fighting exactly that psychology. The, the rumor slash 10 seconds later, there's a run. Because that kind of is what happened with Silicon Valley Bank.
2: Yeah, it's a great point in that uh, the speed of bank runs are now uh, unprecedented. And it unless we have artificial constraints, it, they're only going to get faster and faster because systems get better, right? Like the the Federal Reserve is finally going live with a pseudo-real-time payment system called FedNow, which um, it's going to have all sorts of restrictions in place in the beginning, but eventually the idea is that 24-7, even nights and weekends, you can move up to a certain amount out of any bank and into any other bank. So, Cal, us crypto people are actually fine with this, because everything in the crypto world, in the crypto financial system, is instant 24-7 anyway. So, In crypto, there is this general understanding that you need to build systems that are resilient to the speed of the internet. Uh, And it looks like the traditional banking system is now learning the same lesson in the hard way. I mean, and and just to add to that, decentralized finance as opposed to
0: centralized banks. So, So a bank is one company, the bank's management decides where all the money goes, and the bank's depositors don't see where that money goes And on a daily basis, they have no understanding of what's inside the bank. With a decentralized crypto-based exchange like Uniswap, not Coinbase, which is centralized, but Uniswap is an example of a decentralized crypto exchange. The depositors, i.e. people trading on Uniswap, they see everything that's happening. It's full transparency combined with privacy. So you kind of know what's happening and and you're not very worried because of that. that. That's the goal of crypto.
2: Right. And not just the depositors, everyone. Like you and I right now could pull up one of thousands of websites and look at not just decentralized exchanges like Uniswap, but also decentralized banks like Aave or MakerDAO. And remarkably, we will know more about their balance sheet to the second than Jerome Powell knows about the balance sheet of JP Morgan. Or hell, even Jamie Dimon knows about the balance sheet of JP Morgan. Anyone who's worked in big banks knows that there is so much opacity throughout the entire system, even for the people who work there, which in a crisis, opacity is the most dangerous thing because the depositors who are fleeing will assume the worst. Don't forget,
0: Satoshi Nakamoto, the supposed creator of Bitcoin, made bitcoin in 2009 as a reaction to the banking crisis the original idea and concept of bitcoin was was to not have a crisis like the 2008 banking crisis now there are many there are thousands of more use cases of crypto than satoshi's original outline but that was the reason bitcoin was created it was totally a response to a situation like this just like the original intention of the internet was to send email And now you could do many other things like there's the web and there's websites and all these other things. But, you know, the crypto has evolved also, but, but this was the original purpose was to avoid a situation like this.
2: Yes. How
0: does
3: somebody who has a limited education in banking know what is a good bank to bank in? Because you know, I can tell you when you walked into a First Republic bank in in Beverly Hills, you were treated with a level of courtesy and like, I'd almost use the word elegance. There was no, there's no lines. You went to an individual who was sitting down at a nice desk and you were basically treated to figure out your situation. You knew the people at your bank. That would have been the last bank that I would have thought was going to have trouble because of the level of detail that they put into just interacting with the customer. But here I'm finding out that
0: I had no idea what's going on behind the scenes. To your point, this is why I think it's not the depositor's fault. Is that depositors are not, shouldn't be required to be banking experts to know where the risks are and where they, are, they aren't. Furthermore, even the bank experts, to Oman's point, don't know where the risks are and where they aren't. And it's almost arbitrary because at the current moment, every single bank is essentially bankrupt if there was a run in the banks because of the sharp increase in interest rates. So there's no way to know. But Oman, if you want to add to that.
2: No, I would just add that we as a society, Cal, made a decision at some point a long time ago that depositors should not have to shop around uh, based on the safety of a bank. And, and this is ultimately a political decision and a social decision. Right? It's not really a financial decision. But when we started introducing things like FDIC insurance, strict regulations, and then started bailing out depositors as we did during the savings and loan crisis. And then again in 2008, the consensus among society was that don't worry about it. Like You pick your banks based on the services they offer, the fees that they charge, convenience or costs, but not safety. And there are obvious downsides to this, the simplest one being the the moral hazard uh, argument that, well if depositors don't care how safe their banks are, you're going to end up net-net with more dangerous banks because it's not something they're competing on. The political answer has been, yeah, depositors will not worry about it because regulators are going to worry about it. The regulators will pass rules that make sure that banks behave responsibly. But what we see with every passing crisis is that regulators are always caught flat-footed and are always fighting the last war. So our banking system today is extremely resilient against the problems that took down everything in 2008, but turns out it was not resilient against the simple issue of interest rates going up and duration mismatch. So now I'm sure we get new rules and regulations that say, well, we're going to prevent that from being a cause of a crisis the next time around. But that likely just means that we're going to be completely blindsided when the next crisis comes.
0: Every time interest rates rise quickly, banks fail. I mean, even the Great Depression, 1933, like all the banks failed. (laughs) There was a bank holiday. President Roosevelt, when he became president, had to shut down all the banks. And there was rumors that he was shutting down all the banks, which made the run more intense, which meant they had to shut down the banks even faster. So like we've seen the story play out and it turned into the Great Depression. And each time I feel we learn a little bit more, but to your earlier point, because we learn a little bit more and we learn the easy money solves the problem, we just keep on printing easier money.
2: And here's where I think crypto is actually very useful as an alternative that we can consider. Because, Cal, let me ask you why did you have an account at First Republic? What were you doing there, if you don't mind sharing with us?
3: Uh, actually, because I moved to California and I started to have breakfast with Larry King every day, and he used First Republic Bank. And I saw, I mean, look, When Larry walked in, he got very special treatment, and so I was next to him. So I don't know if I got more special treatment than anybody else, but I do know that anybody who walked in that bank got to see a personal banker and get individual service. They knew each other by name, and I I really didn't see that anywhere else.
2: I've used Signature Bank for 15 years for the same reason. It's just the personal service that you got was better than what you would get at one of the big banks. But what I meant was, if you don't mind telling us, like, what were you doing there? Were you, did you have a savings account, a checking account? Were you using a credit card? What services were you getting from that bank?
3: Yeah, I think it was was a basic checking account that has been, uh, because I now live on the other side of the country and there are no First Republic banks near me, it it sort of has become meaningless in that I don't know the banker to go to. So it was just a part of the timing of my life that led me there. And it was actually, it made banking a beautiful experience, which is why when I am seeing this, I'm feeling horrified. Because if any place seemed to be doing it right, it was First Republic Bank. And, and and I'm just wondering how they could be in this mess.
2: So let's talk about the architecture of banking then, because you mentioned having a checking account, right? Like all, and, and your checking account didn't pay any interest anyway, I assume, right? For, yeah. Right. So you just needed a place to park money because you had to pay your bills. Correct. And. One of the current design decisions of our banking system is that people like you are effectively forced to subsidize people who need mortgages or want a credit card. By which I mean you just need transaction servicing. You need the you know in the old days, you'd use cash, but cash is going away. So now you got to pay rent and you use bill pay and whatnot. So you park your money in a bank. But then the bank turns around and takes a portion of that money. You know, it's fractional reserve banking. And they give someone a mortgage or a credit card or a construction loan. Or ultimately, you know, they fund the U.S. government, too, by buying treasuries. And that's one design of a banking system. But it's a very fragile design of a banking system because it lends itself to the exact situation that we're in now, where you have a lot of uh, asset liability mismatch on part of the banks. A different design of the banking system is imagine where there was a bank that allowed you to open and you just wanted a checking account. They would give you a checking account and all they ever did with your money is buy 30 day U.S. treasuries, right? Bonds that just are extremely short term. They're, they're basically cash in the financial mm-hmm. system. And a lot of the problems that have happened in the last year where interest rates went up, so bond values went down. That's for like 10 year bonds. So it doesn't apply... To 30 year bonds, right? That kind of a bank, which in traditional economic parlance, people call a full reserve bank or a narrow bank. Um, It's also possible that it it wouldn't even buy treasuries. It would just park the money at the Fed. All American banks keep some of their money at the Fed. There's a design where you say, no, this bank exists for no other reason than to take Cal's money and park it at the Fed. And then if Cal needs to pay James, then who cares? It's just a debit and credit on its systems. Uh, Ironically, in our current system, the government has not allowed that kind of narrow or full reserve banking to exist because they say, well, if you open a bank like that, it's so much safer than a First Republic. Me, James, and Cal put most of our money there. And now the banks that are doing mortgage lending and construction lending they have to pay higher interest, and they're going to have to charge the borrowers more. Wow. Okay, now
3: I'm see. Th- this is why, but I'm seeing my. I'm walking into a bank, and for me, the experience was personal. And and not only that, but when you know who you're dealing with, you you don't have to pull out your driver's license and uh, you know go through this rigmarole of being checked. They know who you are, so. I wasn't looking behind the curtain to see what the Wizard of Oz was doing there. And I wasn't thinking of it that way. I was thinking, okay, what? how does this benefit Cal right now? And it made me comfortable, and it did what it was supposed to do.
0: Yeah, and, and it's not like the Wizard of Oz here is doing something bad. The banks are the source of everyone in the country buying homes because most people get mortgages. The banks are the source of loans for many small businesses who who need to survive and grow and flourish. And, and that's why the U.S. economy is, is so innovative compared to almost every other economy in the world. Like, as a culture or a society, we made this decision hundreds of years ago for a reason. This is, this is the best, most effective way to grow an economy, it turns out.
2: Well, a, a debt-fueled economy, James. I, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit in that what we're doing in this situation is we're forcing cal, the cows of the world who just want to park their money and make payments to subsidize people who want to buy a house or take out a small business loan. And that is ultimately a political decision. The benefit of it during the good times is we get cheaper financing across the board. So you do get more home ownership and more investment. The downside of it is that it is a more fragile banking system by design. It's going to be prone to more crises like the one we're experiencing today.
0: Yeah, I agree. It was a give and take. You're paying for that innovation. Okay, can I just,
3: I'm going to, I have a third question and then I'll let you move it along to the crypto. And I hesitate to ask this question because it's a terrible, terrible, terrible scenario. But I'm reminded of a time where I was on uh, like an internet conversation like this, and a world-renowned expert was talking about politics, and it was before, it was in the run-up to the Trump-Biden election. And I wanted to ask the question, like, what if Donald Trump doesn't want to leave office or his supporters want to stop the rightful president from assuming the office? And, the way the guest was talking was like well that that can never happen it's impossible and then i'm watching on january 6th and everything that i was thinking in my head was being sort of played out and so my question now is what is it the end of or sometime june or july the government runs out of money and congress needs to do something to basically say, okay, you can borrow more and keep the thing rolling, which seems like we've been doing for a long time. What if that happened like on the same day that banks were getting run at and you've got a Congress now that's pretty well split and there are people who don't want to bail out anything and just say they don't go along with it. What happens then?
0: I mean, that's a good question because it's never happened. I mean, every year this happens where there's a budget crisis. We hit the debt ceiling and Congress has to vote to increase it. And the newspapers always say, oh no, hundreds of thousands of government employees are not going to get their paycheck. It's all over. Every year this happens. And the same thing happens, which is that they raise the debt ceiling and there's never really an issue. So I would presume that, Congress wouldn't be so split as to not come to some agreement and raise the debt ceiling again, because that's just what always happened. But yeah, it's possible that that could fail. That 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 that's also built into the system that we're going to basically come close to failure every year, but we're going to compromise and agree to move forward. But what if we don't? That's a good question. It could theoretically happen. By the way, your your friend about the the, uh, presidential elections is completely wrong. If he just looked at history, 1824, the presidential election of John Quincy Adams versus uh, Andrew Jackson, there was also some third parties. uh, Andrew Jackson won by a huge amount the popular vote and the electoral college. Uh, John Quincy Adams lost both, but neither side got 50%, so it went into the House, and John Quincy Adams pulled aside the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, and said, listen, I'll make you Secretary of State if you make me President. Deal done. And so John Quincy Adams became President despite losing, clearly losing, it wasn't close, the Electoral College and the popular vote. So there was a rigged election um, more than once. 1876 was another example.
3: All right, I got to do some homework here, but it, it it sounds like everybody that I talk to in finance, they always say, don't worry, at the last minute, it's always going to be resolved. And it it just seems to me that you've got some people sitting there now that don't want this resolved, that, that are saying, no, we are not borrowing any more money. I don't know if that's happened in history. Maybe you can enlighten
0: me there. It has... I- It always happens that people posture in order to get what they want out of the compromise. But you're right, though. The real answer is we just don't
2: know what would happen in that case. All right, I'll let
3: you, let you move it on.
2: I'll add one thing that we were talking about inflation earlier, and James was quoting what Milton Friedman said, that it's always a monetary phenomenon. But I think it's really a trust phenomenon. Like Inflation in a currency is highly tied to not just how much people trust that currency or that the supply of that currency will not be hyperinflated, but what is the political and legal system underlying that currency, right? Like one of the reasons the dollar has been the global reserve currency for decades now is that people trust our political and legal system far more than they would a Venezuelan one or even a Chinese one. But Everything that's happening today from the dysfunction in Washington to uh, the actions that the Federal Reserve is taking, to me, is starting to undermine that trust. And the net result of that trust is going to be more inflation than we would like. Look at a very stark
0: example. Uh, China just brokered relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. You know, she, the head of China is in Russia now for a three-day visit. Uh, the, the world is, is is shaping up without us a little bit for the first time in 100 years. And that is a potentially scary thing for the dollar because, so as, as Oma just mentioned, so much of the world uses the dollar as its currency. But if Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and China decide that, hey, we're going to start trading oil in yuan because the U.S., hasn't been good to us lately, you know, that's, that's an issue for our dollar and, and quite deservedly, like, you know, we're, we're all about justice and liberty for all, but who have around the world, have we really given justice and liberty to in the past 20, 30, 40 years? And I think these could be real issues that combined with the domestic issues could have a problem. I'm not being a doomsayer. I'm not being a conspiratorial, these are just things that are happening that that people have to think about. And James, that is
2: such a good point cuz I fear that the headlines about the um Iran and Saudi Arabia warming of relations or China and Russia getting closer have sort of been lost in the current banking crisis. But Yeah. I've been monitoring it very closely because full disclosure as a crypto person, I feel like you know one reason why I'm generally bullish crypto is that it's ever more useful in a multipolar world where the dollar is losing its status. One of the anchors of the dollar's status as a reserve currency has been the petrodollar system. Right? Just to oversimplify for your audience, this idea that you know, the US brokered these deals decades ago, where the world's biggest oil producers, like Saudi Arabia, price their oil in dollars and they get paid in dollars, and that forces the world's biggest buyers of oil, like China, to always have to need to buy dollars because that's how they pay Saudi Arabia. And this arrangement has really benefited America and thus Americans. It's kept our inflation low and it's kept demand for U.S. treasuries high. So literally, like more Americans were able to afford houses because of this arrangement. And there are all these shifting dynamics globally that, you know, it starts with like the U.S. sort of pulling back militarily. Um, Then there's the fact that we have weaponized our sanctions regime to the point where, given what we did to Russia and before that, Afghanistan, if you're the government of any country that relies heavily on dollars, you might be thinking about diversifying. Um, And then lastly, the fact that previous enemies like Iran and Saudi Arabia are... Starting to talk. I don't want to get too far ahead. There are still many significant differences between them, but there is a world in which uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, China, India, the UAE get together and decide that, you know what, we're overly dependent on dollars, right? Like Saudi Arabia is selling a lot of oil to China. Why is the U.S. getting to have power over this with the currency that they use? So if these countries start to move away from the petrodollar system. It's going to have significant implications on inflation, U.S. power, and ultimately crypto. And now, Oman, let me ask you: did they target Silicon Valley Bank and Signature because of crypto? So they targeted Silvergate and Signature because of crypto. And if if you don't mind, I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about this because I think. This is important for the audience to know, and this should be a scandal. Yeah. So We all know that crypto is very volatile. We talked earlier that it's bad for uh, any bank to have concentrated deposits. Unfortunately, the crypto industry in some ways had the most concentrated deposits. They were literally at two, mostly at two banks, Silvergate and Signature, Um, but not necessarily by choice, because... U.S. regulators, U.S. bank regulators have always frowned upon crypto in a way that the big banks just refuse to bank crypto companies. They're coming around a little bit now that it's going more mainstream. But every crypto company could tell you that for years, if you went to a Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and said, hey, I'm a Coinbase, I want to bank through you guys, they would say, no, it's too risky. Our regulators have not given us clarity. We don't want to deal with it. That created an opening for smaller regional banks. And importantly, Silvergate and Signature both had real-time 24-7 payment systems among their clients. Uh, A lot of people might be surprised that if you have an account at most banks and you want to pay somebody else who has an account at the same bank, they often can't process that payment in real time. But crypto...
0: If you you do it at like 6 p.m., it shows up the next morning at 9 a.m. It's
2: It's not instant. It's not instant, just mostly because the infrastructure is old in banking. Um, But because the crypto markets are 24-7 and Bitcoin, for example, trades 24-7, if you're an exchange, a lender, a hedge fund, um, a wallet provider, you want your banking to also be 24-7. So Silvergate and Signature attracted significant deposits because A, they were willing to take crypto companies as clients and B... They had 24-7 payments among them. So they were very important infrastructure for the industry. But given the the bear market of last year, the collapse, the delevering, the fraud of FTX being exposed, um, they first of all, they experienced significant declines in their deposits because their customers were blowing up. And we talked earlier that that's not good for a bank. Um, But the other thing is they came under significant political scrutiny. And there has been an amazing series of events just in the last three months that within the crypto industry we call Operation Choke Point Two Point Zero. This is a reference to something the Justice Department did, uh, I believe, under the Obama administration, where they tried to hamper legal industries like online poker by preventing them from getting access to the banking system. And... The TLDR of what happened is that first, all of the federal banking regulators put out a joint memo in January that effectively said they think crypto is dangerous for banks. There was this one remarkable memo in it that said, we're not here to tell banks what industries they can or cannot serve, but we don't think there's any safe way to serve crypto. Ask anybody who's worked in banking, that kind of statement from your regulator is almost as good as them telling you not to serve a particular industry. And I think this is a remarkable document, this public memo that people can Google and read, because if there's one rule every bank regulator should follow, it's first do no harm. Right? Like There's a reason why President Biden and every you know, Janet Yellen and Jerome Paul have repeatedly said in the last week that they believe our banking system is safe because the second anyone in power says any banking system or banking activity is unsafe, you have sown the seeds of doubt and you might trigger a run. So I think it's remarkable that although crypto is a very small industry, you had all the federal bank regulators say, hey, we think crypto banking is dangerous. Because think about the message that's sent to the depositors of Silvergate Bank or Signature Bank, and potentially even SVB, even though it did not have a significant crypto clientele. So Silvergate ended up shutting down a couple of weeks ago. There was a few other questionable things there, like the fact that it was under constant attack from Elizabeth Warren in the Senate for potentially being involved in the fraud that FTX committed. But again, think about this. You have a sitting senator questioning the viability of a bank. What message was she sending to the depositors of that bank? Not a good one. And then the last piece is that it had gotten emergency funding from an arm of the US government called the Federal Home Loan Bank system, which there are questions as to why they chose to repay that loan in a way that would lead to their demise, were they forced to? Did they decide to? We don't know the answers. But what ended up happening is that because of Choke Point 2.0 and the multivariate situation with the treasury market, shrinking deposits, etc., Silvergate Bank shuts its doors. Within a couple of days, the run on Silicon Valley Bank begins. And I believe the fact that one tech-friendly bank in California failed surely registered in the decision-making of the customers of another tech-friendly bank, which is Silicon Valley Bank. Maybe they all would have failed eventually anyway because of this dynamic with the bond market, but certainly the fact that the U.S. government drove one bank to the brink did not help the cause. And then a few days after Silicon Valley Bank fails, at the same time that the Federal Reserve last Sunday, announced a special bailout. The one that you described where I said they did it, but they didn't do the part where they got shareholders. The government announced that. But simultaneously, they announced that Signature Bank in New York was shut down. It was shut down by the New York State Banking Regulator. And there are a lot of open questions about why that happened, because people who work there, including Barney Frank of the Dodd-Frank Uh, legislature fame, who happened to be on the board of it, has come out and said that Signature was shut down even though it wasn't insolvent because it was a crypto bank. And there's been other red flags that have come out since. But when you zoom out, there's clear evidence that the U.S. government went out of its way to drive crypto out of the U.S. banking system. But one of the unintended consequences of those actions was a generalized bank run that's now ended up consuming banks like First Republic that had nothing to do with crypto. Yeah. And so where can you bank crypto? It's extremely difficult in the US today. There are some other uh, small and regional banks that were starting to lean in. However, who knows what decisions they've made just in the past week, given the overall environment. What about Coinbase? Is that, you know, that's almost
0: equivalent to banking. Is it safe there, which is the the biggest uh, crypto exchange?
2: It's more a question of like, where is Coinbase banking? And uh, from my contacts throughout the industry, I know that everybody's been scrambling to Open up as many bank accounts as they can. The crypto industry also learned an important lesson in recent months that they don't want to be constant, they don't want to have all their money in just one or two banks. Unfortunately, until unless something changes in the US as far as federal policy is concerned, everybody's looking offshore now. That people are looking for banking relationships outside the US where they don't necessarily have these problems. But then the question, you know, asks itself, Omed,
0: you know, in order for crypto to, in order for Bitcoin, say, to hypothetically, to get to a million dollars, a lot of people have to buy it. There can't just be like billionaires buying it. A lot, a lot of people have to say, oh, I need some Bitcoin to protect myself against the, diversify against the collapse of the dollar. And grandma and grandpa in Indiana are not going to say, oh, well, I need to spread my money out to 16 banks. And I'm gonna use a MetaMask <laughs> wallet here and a treasure hard store nano storage here, and remember my f- 24 key password in like three different places and hiding spots in my house. And they're just not gonna do it. No. And so this is gonna dampen a sharp increase in crypto as much as it deserves to be much higher because of ultimately the story it tells and, and the solutions it has.
2: But just how do people buy it and store it? It's it's hard. It is hard. Uh, The liquidity thing is actually interesting because in the short term, you can argue it both ways. Like There is less liquidity in the crypto markets now because the US-based entities have less access to banking. But uh, to me, that just means more volatility. And it could mean more volatility to the upside because if suddenly the price of Bitcoin starts spiking, some of the traders and hedge funds and market makers who would be there to short it aren't there anymore because they don't have a bank account. Um, But in the long run, it's important to remember crypto is a global phenomenon, James. And at the same time that the U.S. has gone out of its way to debank crypto, the rest of the world, from a regulatory perspective, is becoming more and more friendly towards crypto literally by the day. And in the and in the US, it's actually not just the de-banking thing. It's also like the SEC has gone out of its way to hold back crypto companies. Other state and federal regulators have been coming down hard. At the same time, the UK and the EU are increasingly pro-crypto, the Middle East, Singapore, Hong Kong just made this radical shift from being starkly anti-crypto in the same way that China was to just literally normalizing it. So At the end of the day, you know, like people say this about the internet, right? If for some reason the U.S. government had decided to crack down on the internet 25 years ago, that doesn't mean that there wouldn't have been a Google or a YouTube or a Facebook. It just means that those would have been non-American companies. And unfortunately, crypto is now headed in that direction. Well, I mean, the U.S. was initially worried in the mid-90s about
0: hey, are all the phone companies going to go out of business? You know, because everybody's going to make phone calls over this new thing called the web. And people would tell me with confidence, oh, the government will never let the internet expand because there's crime on the internet and the phone companies will go out of business. So the U.S. will protect those.
2: But, you know, ultimately... That's funny. I didn't know that because people have been saying that to me about crypto for years, that like, the u s government will not let the banks get this intermediate. they're going to like kill Bitcoin when it gets that big, and so on. I mean, the banks are probably more powerful than the phone companies, but maybe not i
0: mean a t and t and Verizon were you know pretty big, and all the con- phone companies were pretty big companies and the cable companies and so on and people were like high level executives then were telling me this will never happen, and there was just nothing they could do about it and so. I think crypto is sort of where the internet was. Like a few years ago, crypto was where the internet was in 1995. Now it's where the internet was in 1998 or 1999, meaning everyone knows what it is, but it's very hard to use and there aren't enough users yet. So the p- promise is there, the potential is there, but it wasn't until 2005 that people said, oh yeah, I'll put my credit card in the internet. It wasn't until 2005, there was a billion users. It wasn't until 2005 websites were easy to build with companies like WordPress and Squarespace. You didn't have to know how to be a programmer to make a website. So we're we're kind of following the same evolution, hopefully faster.
2: Yeah. And actually, I have a question for you, James, because one of the interesting things with new technologies is I think they change the power dynamics among industries. So to give you a specific example, to me, crypto really threatens the big, too big to fail banks. You know, at the end of the day, like My opinion of J.P. Morgan today is that J.P. Morgan is the poor man's Ethereum. That in time, Ethereum will do what J.P. Morgan does in terms of allowing people to send money and other assets around the world, you know, faster, cheaper and safer. Um, Interestingly enough, though, crypto elevates the importance of the asset management industry. Because one, we have a new asset class that that doesn't happen often. Uh, And two... All of those tokenized forms of money or securities or whatever that are now writing Ethereum, they're going to need servicing, they're going to need custodians, they're going to need issuers. And one thing that's really been interesting to me is that as much as the big banks have been poo-pooing crypto whenever they can, if you look at the asset management industry like BlackRock, Franklin Templeton, you know, Fidelity just turned on the ability for millions of its retail customers to be able to buy and hold Bitcoin through them and this might be how the political issue gets resolved. That for every banker that says, hey, this is bad for me, you have an asset manager who says, well, too bad, it's good for me. What was the internet version of this? Like AT&T, Verizon, yeah, they saw a a decentralized network for communication as bad. But what industries showed up at that moment to tell the government that it would be good for them? The communications industry. (laughs) So...
0: The, the the irony is if you can't beat them, join them. So the cable companies built, you know, high-speed fiber optics to Europe and turned on the internet and, and bought internet companies and ISPs and, you know, provided internet through the cable lines. And these communication companies are 100% internet companies now. So to your po- like, to our earlier point, crypto is hard, like, it's hard to buy, it's hard to store, it's hard to understand, it's hard to transfer. So banks are good at all these things. And to Cal's point, it's courteous. The banking industry is courteous. You cannot get customer service at any crypto company. Who is going to call a company called SushiSwap and find customer service there? Like you can't. So That's a trick question.
2: It's not even a company and there's right, no phone a
0: number to call. Right there is no customer service. So ultimately, crypto needs a front end, a financial totally. front end before there's going to be wide before there's going to be a billion users. There has to be a billion users, just like for the internet. And the banks are the only ones well positioned to provide that front end. And nobody else is going to do it. And uh, so I think ultimately, you see this in Jamie Diamond's statements. At first, he was only saying crypto's a fraud. Then he was like, "Okay, crypto is a fraud." But we're going to build a crypto department. And, and then he was saying, "Oh no, crypto! I never said crypto was a fraud." Now he's saying, "Maybe it's a fraud. I don't really know yet." But no, no, this, he's
2: he's still he's he's still saying it's a fraud, even though J.P. Morgan now literally offers Bitcoin products to his customers. So you have a lot more reach than I do. I would love, like, the next time he's on CNBC or somewhere, someone asks him, like, "So just to be clear, your private bank is now selling a fraud to its customers." Right, well,
0: I should I should have asked that to different bank people I've had on, but I do think it it we're going to go down the trend. If we truly are where the internet was in like 1998, 99, eventually it's going to be if we can't beat them, join them and that's what's going to happen. Because look, London, which has a super crypto-friendly prime minister now, is and the UAE, there those two areas, UAE and 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 London are competing to be the crypto banking centers of the world. And people like Jamie Dimon are not going to let that happen.
2: Uh, Actually, to your point, I, I do agree that banks are still going to be important. It's just a question of which banks. And to your point, European and Asian banks have been much more forward on crypto adoption than American banks.
0: Yeah, now the SEC chairman, he's like going crazy or something about crypto. Like he doesn't even make sense in what he's doing. And even S- S- other SEC commissioners are writing, you know, statements against what he's what he's doing. So there's going to be, you know, let's say, you know, there's the boomers, there's the Gen Xers, and then there's what followed. Okay, the Gen Xers are debating the fraud, not for odd issue. The boomers are all about gold and the Gen Y and, and and Gen Z people are don't even know what gold is. So at some point, People are going to get old. They're going to retire, and it's already getting there. The Elizabeth Warrens of the world are are going to be leave office, and a crypto friend people who only know crypto and the internet are going to take over, and that's going to happen fairly soon.
2: From uh, your mouth to, I don't know, Joe Biden's ears. Oh, she's ears, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, uh, is there going to be a
0: banking collapse, Omid?
2: <laughs> no, but. Actually, the reason I came on, if you remember, was because of the prediction I made the last time on your um, podcast that that we were talking about FTX, and I predicted that soon enough some crisis or scandal would come out of the traditional system that would make everybody forget about FTX. So, Not not that I want there to be crisis, but um, I do want to take a victory lap here. However, I don't think we've seen it yet. I think the banking crisis is the canary in the coal mine. I think the real crisis and scandal that'll come out sometime this year probably is buried somewhere deep in the bond market because we just had one of the most historic bull markets ever in anything in the bond market, and it ended in spectacular fashion with the Fed hikes. And you, James, as a and Cal too probably, as a student of human nature, And markets could appreciate the fact that anytime there is a very, very long-lasting bull market in anything, first, there's a crisis, and then there's a scandal. And by scandal, I mean like FTX or Bernie Madoff or WorldCom. So I still believe that both of these things will come out of the bond market. They will be aided by the fact that compared to banking, the bond market is even more opaque and when that does happen, it will really highlight the full transparency of crypto and decentralized finance.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I have one point and one question, which is, first off, how do you buy a bond? I can't just go on an exchange and buy a bond. Like, I, to this day, actually, I've even been a hedge fund manager. As you know, I mean, we work together on a hedge fund. I don't even know how to buy a bond right now. You have to call a broker at a bond brokerage or something. It's not easy to buy bonds.
2: No, the market is significantly more fragmented than the equity market. A lot of people buy bonds through things like ETFs, just because it yeah, makes close it... and fund you can buy bonds.
0: That's right. it. I know how to buy bonds through the stock market, but yeah. not like oh, I want to buy this loan that everybody made to, for David Bowie's music. I can't buy a, one of the <laughs> Bowie bonds. But uh, the other thing is though, but what what form do you see this crisis happening in the
2: bond market? I don't know. I'm actually not smart enough about the bond market to know exactly. I just know that for our lifetimes, interest rates have not gone up until a year ago. Like There's been this trend that really began with um, when uh, Paul Volcker in the late 70s, early 80s, decided to rein in interest state, uh, inflation by jacking interest rates to the moon. And we've had this long-term global decline in interest rates, which... Anybody remembers their high school econ class? When interest rates go down, bond values go up. And every time it looked like rates might go up for any reason, the government has intervened. Right. So not only is this like a 40-year bull market, but it's a 40-year bull market that was effectively subsidized by trillions of dollars and euros and yen in printing. So there's a generation of people who've never been taught a hard lesson in the bond market. And you study human nature, you know that that sort of thing ends with scandal. I wonder if we could see it happen in the um,
0: insurance industry, if there's large disasters where trillions of dollars worth of people need to be paid off somehow, and then we see really the exposure of the insurance companies to the bond market, and they just can't pay. You know, like, we, like almost happened with AIG in 2008. And these insurance companies just can't pay what they owe,
2: possibly, or or the leveraged loan market, uh, you know, leverage buyouts, private equity. I mean, one of the things about the bond market is because it's generally perceived to be safer than things like equities, you tend to have a lot more leverage from it by everyone. Um, we saw some hints of this, by the way, like when in the UK pensions had to start dumping uh, their UK bonds because of. Um, issues having to do with interest rates were too low for too long and they bought these instruments that juiced their yield, but it meant that when you had spiking rates like the Bank of England was orchestrating, they would have to start dumping um, UK bonds. So again, I am not smart enough about most things, including the bond market, to tell you exactly where the bodies are buried, but it's a multi-hundred trillion-dollar asset class that's only gone in one direction for a very long time. That sort of thing never ends without a scandal and a crisis. And we'll see. Maybe the Fed, though, knowing
0: this is on the horizon, maybe they'll somehow figure out how to reverse and save
2: face at the same time oh, I'm I'm sure it's going to warrant not just the Fed, but other central banks to intervene. But then that means they're giving up the fight on inflation. And it means we're going to have just persistently high inflation indefinitely, uh, which this is not investment advice, but that's the kind of thing that makes certain kinds of people want to own crypto.
0: But, you know, I will say this also, and I'm, of course, a big believer in crypto, but owning anything that is price in dollars is good like not just crypto now crypto's made for this on the banking sense but owning stocks that are priced in dollars they'll go up too if the dollar weakens or owning uh real estate potentially i mean they're more affected by interest rates but owning real right. estate in the long run will go up if it's priced in dollars uh, you know collectibles will go up if they're priced in dollars so you know stocks anything priced in dollars that aren't dollars will go up but it's just that crypto for 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 a store of value crypto was made for
2: this i agree but the thing to remember is that things like stocks are more complex like companies if inflation forces companies to make less money and it impacts earnings that's not great for stocks and some you would know better than me but some amount of the stock market gains of recent decades has been because of debt fueled share buybacks Almost Um, all of it, actually. Okay, well, there's that. And then real estate is the most levered industry. So persistently high interest rates, if we get them, are going to be a problem. Plus, the one good thing about crypto is it collapsed already in the past year. You know, one of the nice things about crypto, once you get to the other side, is that we don't have bailouts and we let things blow up. And we have mass delevering events like we already did last year that lead to Prices coming from significant lows in a way that real estate hasn't fallen that much, stocks haven't fallen that much, even collectibles yeah. haven't fallen that much. Yeah. So, Cal, any any last any last
0: minute thoughts, questions, concerns, fears, hopes, <laughs> happiness? <laughs> well, I I'm
3: hopeful that we get to a place where and I start with myself. I got to get more educated about this. I'm I'm listening to all this and I'm just realizing that this stuff is behind a wall that I've never peeked into and it really is time for me to understand what's happening when I go into a bank and I start an account there. And so one of the beauties of this conversation for me even though you probably didn't intend it uh this way you're trying to show people what's going on and where things are going is i completely understand that i got to go back to basics here and understand how this was put together so i can fully appreciate more
0: of these conversations well that might be true but i also wouldn't educate too much on it because for every point that both omen and i were making there was a point in history before that that led to the point we were making so you can go back to like take student loan debt student loan debt is a huge problem in the u.s but it can be traced back to uh you know the johnson's great society program where you know formations of companies like sally may to back student loans but that could be paced back to you know to the trace back to the the veterans bill in 1946, which paid for veterans student loan debt. Uh, And, you know, it could go on and on the, the over marketing of colleges in the seventies you know, everything we're saying, like, like for instance, the banking crisis of 2008 could be traced back to subprime loans being created in the late nineties could be traced back to also the great society program and welfare programs and housing projects and so on which could be traced back to, and on and on forever. So the problem with with learning about all this stuff is that there's no end to the things. It's fascinating and it's interesting and it could give us all educated guesses. But the true answer really for all of these things is we don't really know. We're just trying to make as well-educated guesses as, as possible. And But our our point is that just like we don't know,
2: Jerome Powell doesn't know either. <laughs> and like that. The one thing I do know is Cal should read my book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> Both of you got you
3: got it. That's where I'll start. Uh,
2: I, email me. Email me your address, the new one, because actually, James, I will take this moment to plug it. So much of uh, my new book, Rearchitecting Trust, is not about crypto. It's about like why is the banking system the way it is? Why did why was central banking invented in the first place? Why does inflation happen? And then from there it goes into how might crypto be an upgrade. So Cal, please, um, please send me your address. I will. It would be my pleasure to send you a copy, and then maybe we can all come back in some months and discuss what we've learned. And Cal could give me feedback other than what James has already told me, which is that the title sucks. But that
0: said, that said, <laughs> say the full title again because it's on Amazon. You can buy it. It's an excellent book. I think it's the replacement to was it Peter Bernstein's book on risk. Like I think it's better than that in terms of understanding the financial system. So, what, what, what's the title?
2: Thank you, James. It's Rearchitecting Trust, the Curse of History, and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms.
3: That is a lot of words,
0: brother. <laughs> <laughs> I what's, what's, your, what, what's your latest book? You, what's your book of interviews? Uh, we did
3: uh, Meaning of Life uh, for uh, a composite of uh, the interviews I did for Esquire. There are three of them. Uh, and another one's called what i've learned uh, and those are basically all interview based the, the wisdom that people who've lived incredible lives they've been icons of the last 75 years the wisdom that they've taken from all their experiences uh, so i uh, I've, i think it's time that we all pay attention to the dollars and not only that, but all the things you've been talking out beyond that, because, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people about fears and trust and what they believed were the most important things to them. But, at least for me in my life, I am seeing that I better start following the decimal points. So we'll look at today as a start of something great.
0: All right. Well, for both of you, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. And Omid, thanks for the, the crypto perspective. Once again, you're always the, uh, a good crypto expert to, to follow and to ask questions to. And uh, may the odds always be with you.
2: <laughs> thank you, James.
0: Thank you, James.
1: From their innovative practice facility to unmatch views from the fairway. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.